I was actually thinking about Two Guys, a Girl, in a Pizza Place. It was a sitcom that was Ryan Reynolds' big breakout. But, I mean, before that, he was in the, the teen soap opera yeah. 15 on Nickelodeon. I don't know if anyone remembers that at all. No. But he was, yeah, it was a soap opera for teenagers that actually cast teenagers, not 30-year-olds pretending <laughs> to be teenagers. So <laughs> Ryan Reynolds like is- 21 Jump Street. Yeah, he's like a 14-year-old kid in this, but Two Guys, a Girl, in a Pizza Place- why am I talking about Ryan Reynolds right Nobody now? Nobody knows. Anyway, Robert Goulet. The, there is a New Year's Eve episode where they get Robert Goulet to sing at their apartment <laughs> for the New Year's drop. The, the genius of Will Ferrell's Robert Goulet interpretation. It's the most. It's one of the most postmodern you, pieces of comedy. Yeah, but you also do not need to have ever seen Robert this Goulet. It's not an impression. <laughs> it's just some guy. But all I hear is. Away in a mansion, no Speaking, and there's the connection to the episode. Yeah. Oh man, I wanted to talk about David the Gnome from Nickelodeon, but yeah, we should start. We should start. We should start. Listener, thank you for joining us. This is 10,000 Places. We're a theologian, a philosopher, and a campus minister going to a room. And then from there, go wherever Christ leads, because he does play in 10,000 places. This is Alex Giltner, Justin Aquila, and Lewis Pearson. So we had, at the end of the last episode, a reference to Francis's love of the Eucharist. And actually, he's the one who invents the living nativity. Right. Right. In these two ways. And his he and his order are, I don't believe they began Eucharistic adoration, but they're the ones that made it really popular mm. as mm-hmm. a popular mm-hmm. devotion. It's also Claire, one of my favorite stories of Claire, okay? Talk about this is Jesus, right? You guys know the story I'm talking about? I think I know where you're going. Yeah, so it was during one of the Crusades, and a band of marauders, of Muslim marauders, and I mean, I say Muslim, but that was basically by, like, nation and ethnicity. They clearly were not practicing Muslims. They were mercenaries, (laughs) and they were running through Italy, raping and pillaging And they were coming to Assisi. The ladies at San Damiano were right there, you know, at the bottom of the hill. And they're going to get really brutalized, honestly. It was a super dangerous thing. And to this day, the city of Assisi celebrates this day because it seems to have really happened. It's not a fake miracle. Like, this really happened. They came and they were coming into the San Damiano and she took the monstrance and there are two different tales. So the monstrance is the thing that holds the Eucharist for people to see. Right? During Eucharistic adoration. That's right. That's right. And there are two different tales. The one is that she laid down on the ground with the monstrance at her head in front of her and her face into the ground. The other, and this is one I like to think, but who knows, she stood and she just yeah. held it out in front of them. And they stopped and then they left. And they didn't attack San Damiani or Assisi. And so Assisi still celebrates this day. And there is no reason that mercenaries that are Muslim would care about a monstrance, much less the Eucharist inside. But Claire thought, well, this is Jesus. Right. And he is my defender. Right. And so they have to bow to Jesus. One of my favorite stories. And in fact, this is why Claire is usually depicted with a monstrance. Yeah. Yeah. Way back, one of our earlier episodes, we talked about the multivalent meaning of the word of God. The word of God could mean the Bible. It could mean Christ, the word incarnate. It could mean creation itself that was spoken into being by God, the father. And Jesus's presence is multivalent in this way as well, right? We have Jesus 
who becomes flesh and blood, the word incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary. And we have Jesus' flesh and blood given to us in the Eucharist. We have Jesus' mystical body in the church herself. And I think it's interesting that Francis brings these together for us. It also shows the particularist focus he has. By that, I mean he doesn't care about universalities as much as he cares about the person in front of him. He doesn't care about the poor. And that's borne out in yeah. the intellectual Franciscan tradition. Yeah, who cares about leprosy and poverty? I care about this leper, this poor person. Yeah, that's right. That's amazing. That's so well said. And the Eucharist is a particular kind of thing. Right. And so two points about that. One, this is where this becomes the concept of hycheity which was already there before Scotus, but Scotus kind of crystallizes it. And it literally is a, the Latin is basically thisness, that everything possesses its very particular self, right? And that universals in a sense are almost really just taxonomical categories that the particulars of what it is. So this person in front of me and this dog and this moment, these things have very particularness. But also when it comes to the Eucharist, and this is, if, you know, if you don't care about that point, listener, don't worry about it. But here's the really cool thing. So we know that Jesus, as second person of the Trinity, dwelt on earth in a different way than just his omnipresence as his divine nature. Because all three persons of the Trinity have the divine nature and the divine nature is omnipresent. So all three are present everywhere. But to say that Jesus was born in the flesh, walked on earth, died, rose again, ascended to the Father. This means that in a literal way, the person, historical the second well. person, historical as well, the second person of the Trinity is literally localized in that yeah. place and time. Yeah. And then so two points spring from this. One, so when we receive the Holy Spirit in baptism, this is super powerful because, yeah, the Holy Spirit dwells in everything because omnipresence, but the Holy Spirit as a person dwells in each and every singular person who is a Christian in a similar way that Jesus singularly dwelt in Nazareth and Palestine and is now singularly in heaven. But secondly, that the Eucharist means that Jesus literally as a person, not Jesus's general universal presence, not even just his mystical presence as the church, but his physical presence is present on the altar, in the consecration. He is present on the tongue when you receive him, or on the hand if you receive him that way, which is fine. He is present, literally. And this speaks to the early Christians. They really believed this. This goes all the way back, that they were communing literally with the person, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And this is why we're not cannibals. We're not just eating flesh. We're eating the whole Christ. The whole risen body of Christ. Yeah. And this, Living yeah. flesh, not dead. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually this incredibly intimate gesture, an intimacy that was born out in communion, in mm. union with, not just with union with Jesus, but in the spirit with Jesus and the Father, but also union with all those who are receiving yep. the Eucharist, not just in that particular day, but throughout history. Yeah. Justin, this also explains the... Receiving of the Eucharist is a conjugal union, right? It's a one flesh union where two flesh become one. Although in this one flesh union, this is the way that Augustine writes it in a mystical experience he has. He writes about it in his autobiography, The Confessions. A voice came to him and said, when you eat this food, unlike usual food, which becomes you, this food, you become like the food. But this explains, right? In a conjugal union, husband and wife who've declared publicly to the world, we are one flesh. Therefore, they 
they come together in the marital act in a way that's proper, and it would be improper for them to come together with other people in that same act, right? And this is what happens at the reception of the Eucharist, right? I mean, this is one of the reasons, I mean, I'm looking at you because I think like when people come to the mass and they say, well, why can't I receive and all the rest? But it's because something is happening that they have not yet assented to. They're not part of the bride, right? They haven't said yes to Christ, their head, as part of the Catholic Church. Yeah. I actually think this is what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says it is improper to unite a prostitute to the body of Christ. Now, I do think the body of Christ there means church, but I also think he has the Eucharist in mind, that if you do an improper conjugal act outside of the bounds of marriage, it would be similar to sleeping with a prostitute and then going home and sleeping with your wife. In that case, even though she's your wife, it's like a Catholic coming to communion without having... With mortal sin or... Yeah. yeah. I think it's an... Yeah. Another way to put that is it's an act of faithfulness because it's a covenantal relationship. In our previous episode, we spoke of the language of sacrifice and how the Eucharist is the consummation of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And in the Old Testament language, the, the sacrifice was confirmed the covenantal relationship between God and Israel. And the Eucharist confirms the covenantal relationship that I have with Jesus in and through the body of Christ and through the church. And so every act of communion in some sense is an act of faithfulness, God's faithfulness to me, but a return of my faithfulness to him. Man, I just got Hebrews running through my brain Mm -hmm. right now. It's such a great book. The sacrificial theology there is so rich. And talk about a work that takes the whole Old Testament sacrificial logic and reframes it through Jesus such that Jesus is actually the logic of Old Testament sacrifice. Like this is what's going on in the mass that we're, and this is why even the sanctuary is set up to be a, as we've talked about before in this episode, a kind of mirror of the sanctuary in heaven. All right. So we've spoken a little bit about what the Eucharist is in prior episode, it's biblical roots. Over the course of history, this term transubstantiation emerges. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I understand it literally means a change of substance. Yeah, yeah. Trans means to move across a boundary. So transubstantiation is substance moving across a boundary of one substance into another substance. One of my questions is, why does this term, like what is the problem this term or the development of this term is answering in the church? Well, What are the objections to it? Yeah, I mean, to be like, I think the most general response is to answer what we talked about in our opener from the last episode, which is, how do you explain the fact that we're saying and believing that we're eating the real body and blood of Christ when it clearly in every other way seems to be bread and wine. Yeah. So we've held this belief. So yeah. transubstantiation doesn't become a thing until 1200s. Yeah. Okay. With Lateran four, it becomes official. So it's really the bringing in of Aristotle that gives them this language of describing it. But literally it's like for 1200 years we've been doing this, but nobody's really explained except in very kind of soft mystical terms. I don't mean that in a bad way, but just kind of, you know, leaky mystical terms that this is literally the body and the blood. So we were talking earlier about scriptural and some of the debates and interpretation of scripture that happened in a debate between a Catholic and a Protestant. Would transubstantiation be more of an answer to a skeptic, a person who is coming from outside the Christian faith, who's like walked into church, what are these Catholics doing gathered around the altar, receiving some bread and wine that they think is Jesus? Does that provide transubstantiation? provide a response to a person who's coming from that worldview? 
I mean, I think it does, but... It would require a lot of background information before yeah. it could help a person pastorally, I think. I mean, the reason I still like the word transubstantiation is it does kind of have that pagan sound to it. Like, we do transubstantiation. <laughs> because I am... I hope this doesn't offend any of our listeners or even you guys, but like, I have this kind of like deep magic sensibility about Christianity. Like, Christianity is the true magic. Our priests are casting the true spells, you know... We have the true power, which is God and church and the Holy Spirit. And so the invocation- The the other forms of magic we're just playing at. Right, exactly. And to insidious or silly means, trying to do what literally happens in the church with the the true priest, right? Dude, you need to read till we have faces. (laughs) I know, right? Yeah. Yeah, I really do. Well, my wife says that too. But like, I actually think that this kind of magicking brand of Catholicism is coming directly from Tolkien and Lewis. Yeah, they had this yeah. very, right, right. very real sensibility that like what the other myths and magics are playing at, like you said, Christianity is really doing. The substance changing is really a, a metaphysical way of talking about what's really there. When you say, what am I looking at? A metaphysician would use the word substance, certain kinds of metaphysicians, as a shorthand for saying, this is what I'm really talking about. This the is the essence. Yeah, so... Although essence can be distinguished from substance, I know. Yeah, these are some imperfect analogies, but let's say you get some flour and eggs and butter and so on, and then you put them together and you denature it with heat and you put it in an oven and it turns into a cake, right? So the original pieces have changed into something different. And so you'd look at it and you you wouldn't say, oh, those are two eggs and some flour. No, you'd say, this is a cake. And so a metaphysician would say, well, the substance is what you're naming there. This is a cake. And if you were to refer to these other things, those were component parts, but that's not what it is anymore. And to go even further into a kind of allegorical use of this, you might say, well, this is 2,000 carbs. And someone else might say, this is my wife giving me love through a cake. I was going to say, it could be just unconditional love from an object. Cake loves me unconditionally. (laughs) Yeah. And so when you talk about transubstantiation, that's the question. Like, Well, it's bread and wine. That's what it is. These are words to describe what I'm looking at. And when you say it's now Christ's body and blood, you're saying it's a different thing now. Again, in metaphysical terms, a different thing. And so this name is telling you what you're looking at now. That's what transubstantiation is basically trying to describe. And these terms come about to help give this clearer distinction for people, right? Yeah. So the word substance, really, I mean, it's clear from the English, even though it's a Latin word, substantia, literally means to stand under. It's the stuff underneath. So basically, Aristotelian logic, this goes back to Aristotle, separates under discourse. So there are other distinctions he makes with other categories. But in these, the categorical logic, he says, everything is divided into substance and accidents. And by accidents, he doesn't mean, oh, I slipped on a banana and started the Chicago fire. (laughs) Where did that come from? Where did that even come from? Anyway, so basically by accident, he means accidents are things that can... They're not essential to what you are. There's so many ways to be in the world that are not essential to one. They can change, but you're still what you are. Right. So like, you know, there's accidents like relation. I, the Lewis is to my left. Okay. That is a relational accident. He doesn't have to be to my left. I don't have to. There's nothing about my human substance that demands that Lewis is to my left. I could be sitting down right now, and I am, but there's nothing essential about that. This is an accidental quality. It is not an essential quality. So that which ascribes only to the substance itself as substance is an essential quality. Me being human, it would be, you know, mammal, 
biped, you know, rational, mortal, whatever. And then accidental qualities are things that can apply to my substance, but are incidental quality or accidental quality. So like I have black hair that is not essential to being a human substance, but it is me. And so what is happening in transubstantiation is that while all of the accidents of the bread, and not just of bread itself, but of that particular bread, if it's particularly salty bread, if it was made with leaven or without leaven, all these different things, and the accidents of this wine do not change. They stay there. But the substance, the thing that stands under, the what it is category that you were talking about, Lewis, it is bread, it is wine, changes and goes from bread substance and wine substance, not just to any body and blood substance, but to literally Christ's specific, personal, historical, resurrected body and blood. And that's the miracle. It is 100% a miracle. Yeah. Okay, just kind of reviewing for the purpose of the doctrine, the accidents stay the same. And the accidents conclude DNA. Substance is not a physical reality in the way that accidents are a physical reality, right? So like, yeah, my hair is black, but blackness isn't a category of physical reality in the same way that a black hair is, right? And so like- That's a good distinction. Yeah, so accidents still have- Connections to issues of particularities and universals. But accidents themselves are manifested in the physical reality, and that's why they can manipulate and change. A substance can't change. It can only stop being that substance and become a different substance. Yeah. Right? Can you give an example of that? It's when you have a live cat and it dies, and now it's a corpse. It's no longer a cat. It's something else. Right. Whereas if I dye my hair, it's changed. So so substance is an essential quality. And it belongs to a stratum of reality that is beyond the physical realm, even though it participates in the physical realm. So being human is not bound by time, even though you are bound by time, right? right? With your physical body and right. stuff like that. So in the case of the Eucharist, we'd say that the accidents are what makes up the wheat that makes up the bread. Yeah, it's and, the molecules and, and, and all the, that stuff. The juice of the grape that makes up the wine. So yeah, so like it does not on the level of accidents, change physically in any yeah. way. And the church has always taught that. Absolutely. Clear. Right. They, they haven't always had this language. Right, uh, right. Uh, this enough. precision. Yeah. Yeah. What, but what it, about this? Yeah. Carl Sagan's famous line, you are stardust. <laughs> Even if it is the case that the material that made up the stars of the cosmos is spread out through the molecules in, in our bodies, we're not stars. Right? No, we're not. Right. So right. metaphysically speaking, we're human beings. Even though... We might have material in us that came from something else. And so it's clear, metaphysics isn't this spooky, amorphous, whatever you want it to be. Because no, that's it's not... quantum physics. <laughs> spooky <laughs> movement at a distance, is yeah. that what it is? Just because it's not matter that you see under a molecule doesn't mean it's not real or conceptual analysis that people with too much time on their hands get to play at. It's pointing at something real. So when you say you're a human being who happens to have stardust in your molecules, I'm pointing to what you are. And the same is true of something like the Eucharist. I'm saying what the thing is now. It's, it's Christ. Right. It just happens to have all the accidents left over from the substance that it just... These categories of reality, and that's to use Aristotle's own word, are real discussions. Lewis literally is to my left. 
Now, I can't take leftness and put it under a microscope and figure out what any of that means. Yeah. But it is a real category. And it matters because if I throw a knife to my left, I might hit Lewis and kill him. <laughs> yeah, please throw it to your right where Justin's sitting. <laughs> but to see nature in action might help to bring this home. And I think when I say nature, I mean a substance, mm-hmm. right? So Yeah, essence, substance, and nature. That's what makes up an entity. Yeah. Let's say if you look morphologically, the way the thing looks in its shape, at what happens when a cat eats food and when a human eats food, you might say it's the same thing. Right. But it's not the same thing. When a cat eats... It's not the same kind of thing. It doesn't eat rationally. As when a human... So cats don't go on diets. They may be put on diets, <laughs> right, but right. they don't go on diets. They don't fellowship. They don't invite people over for you know, a makeup meal because you got mad at work or something. They, <laughs> and, and the same thing is true of everything that flows from the nature of a thing. So a human being, when a human being participates in the act that brings about a new human being, and when another mammal does it that's not a human being, they may look the same morphologically from the shape of the animal from how the DNA comes together from the mother and father. In the accidental qualities, they are the same reality. Yeah, but animals reproduce and humans procreate. That's right. Given our nature, even though they look the same, something fundamentally different happens when we do what looks like what someone else is doing. Yeah. And so when we're talking about nature's in action, it helps, I think, to make this clear. When you eat this bread, drink this cup, You are being saved. You are abiding in Christ. Something completely different is happening, even though it looks like what happens when you eat bread and wine. Right. That's exactly right. And so the way I've explained it, and I've done this with rationality in humans versus problem-solving animals, when you strike a match and when you light a lighter, the same thing is happening in one sense. You're producing fire. But they're completely different mechanisms that get us there, Mm -hmm. right? It's to the same result. And so there's something here in the same way in that, Yeah, when mammals have sex and when humans have sex, and humans are mammals, the same thing happens, but also something completely different is at work, right? right? And when you bless food normally or when a priest bless food normally or when you eat normally, it looks similar to what may be happening when a priest consecrates the bread and the wine and you consume the body and blood of Jesus. But something completely different is at work. Yeah. There is nourishing molecules entering your right. gastrointestinal tract. But primarily what's happening is you're participating in a faithful abiding act. Right. So maybe as a final little, you know, cheeky quip, Catherine of Siena didn't survive on the Eucharist for the last four years of her life because the nutrition from the bread and wine was so good. <laughs> she survived on it because Christ miraculously kept her alive. Which is, again, to go back, it's the fundamental reality. We've talked about before, the scriptural understanding, the pledge of Jesus in the Eucharist is the, is the why in what we understand about the Eucharist, and transubstantiation is more trying to understand the how. The how the bread becomes body. Yeah. Not how we're saved or anything right, like right, that, but yeah. Right. So we really have to fit the doctrine of transubstantiation, if we pull it out, as sometimes happens in catechesis, apart from the rest of the scriptural story of the Eucharist and Jesus's mission, then the transubstantiation wouldn't make sense in some sense. Yeah, it doesn't describe why. It only describes what is happening at that moment. Yeah. It's more a kind of, well, this is the wrong word, but it's more of a mechanistic explanation than it is something else. Which for some people is important to understand. Yeah, Yeah. and, and it's not the, it is actually what's happening. But there are other ways to talk about it, too. The mm-hmm. church baptized this Aristotelian logic to understand the Eucharist. 
But there are other ways to explain it as long as they don't contradict what transubstantiation says. They're perfectly fine. And, you know, sometimes I think, and Scotus said something to this effect, sometimes I think it would have been easier if we'd stuck with something like consubstantiation (laughs) or just mystical stuff because then, you know, people would find it easier to believe and stuff like that. But then I remember John 6 Mm -hmm. and I think, no, you know what? This is what we believe by goodness. We believe it and we stand on it and we'll continue to stand on it because it's what Jesus taught. I love when the communion antiphon is whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life and I will raise him on the last day. That is the whole hope of Christianity. That is it right there. That is the gospel. Preach. And the Eucharist not only what we stand upon, but it is it is what sustains us. It's yeah. the source and summit of our faith. We've done it again. We've gone ten thousand places. Oops! Uh, through the again. through philosophy. Now Britney Spears. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I don't know how to rescue this episode. But thanks for uh, listening, folks. This has been ten thousand places. My name is Alex Giltner. I'm Justin Aquila. I'm Louis Pearson. <laughs> hey, keep it real. Keep it transubstantial. (laughs) (laughs) This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.